that to be honest, we just take for granted, right? In your home or your apartment, you turn a little knob and there's water running hot or cold most of the time. Sometimes it's only cold. That's okay. Uh, It's still clean. It's still nice. It's still refreshing. It's still vital uh, to our lives. We have access to so many resources. Speaking of doing church in a YMCA, praying for the city movement, Oh my goodness, the resources that the Y provides to our community, uh, the things that they have going each and every uh, day uh, is incredible. Uh, We can never keep track of it all. And of course, the opportunity to do church here, uh, that people would have access to the gospel in an otherwise public community center, that we can preach the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, we live in a nation, in a culture, an environment where we have incredible access to so many things. Uh, But even more than that, at this feast of booths, this feast of tabernacles in John 7, the people of God have access to so much more provision than they realize. With Jesus actually standing and teaching and preaching in their midst. And what you saw on that last day, the great day, what they hear Jesus announce is a provision like nothing else they've ever seen across the history of what God has done through that people. Uh, it's an incredible, excuse me, an incredible and abundant provision. Uh, and so if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write down, here's kind of our operating sentence. I think the whole, the whole uh, text fits into this main idea that in this text we learn that Jesus gives his living spirit freely to those who come to him and believe, but he will go where non-believers cannot come. This is an interesting set of truths we see when we isolate 32 to 52. We, we focus in on what is happening at the end of, of John chapter 7, that there's this free and abundant access to an amazing provision through faith in Christ. And yet, there is a particular destination, somewhere that Christ is going, where not everyone can come. How can those things both be true? I, that's what I hope to wrestle with, with you this morning if you're thinking with me about the structure of the text, when we're, when we're walking through Scripture together in the Bible, it's good for us to figure out, okay, is this a story, like a narrative? Is this like a, a set of discourse, a, a, a teaching from Jesus? Um, uh, we have to wrestle through what, what type of text are we dealing with here? And we've got both. I think you'll see that there's kind of a a little story we can follow where there are men sent to arrest Jesus. And we'll see what happens at the end of the story. But what I mainly want you to focus on are the truths that Jesus declares and then the response that the people have to those two truths. That'll give us three sections to look for this morning, all underneath that main idea that Jesus gives his living spirit freely to those who come to him and believe. But he will go where non-believers cannot come. The first section, if you're taking notes, you can write down what we'll see in in verses 32 to 36 is a certain destination. Jesus talks about a certain destination. Look at it with me in verse 32. It says that the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. 
there's the introduction of conflict into our passage this morning. But, but right before that conflict comes, we get a reminder that the crowd is muttering. Remember, the people were muttering even before Jesus got to Jerusalem, all the way back at the beginning of the chapter. They were muttering while Jesus was teaching them. Last week, we walked through how Jesus taught them ultimately that they don't know God as much as they think they may know stuff about God or stuff about His law. They've misapplied it. They've misunderstood it and proven they do not know the living God because they have not come to Him in faith. Uh, And so the people are still muttering. They still have all these different responses to him. And verse 32, the Pharisees, the the religious leaders of the time, are hearing the crowd continue to mutter stuff about Jesus, and they're fed up. They are done. They are finally ready to do what has been talked about in general. Look at like verse 1 in chapter 7, right? He would not go about, Jesus would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. We, We know and the crowds knew that 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 was the posture of the authorities towards Jesus. But in verse 32, here we go, officers are, are sent to arrest him, right? Now, we know the end of the story. John's audience, I believe, for the, the vast majority of them knows the end of the story. That's why John gives a lot of uh, details throughout his gospel, talking about, hey, Jesus was talking about this, or remember, this is speaking about a later event that's going to happen, those kind of things. So we know that the officers in this story are not going to be able to arrest him, but that shouldn't stop us from putting ourselves in the people's shoes here in this moment, right? They've been hearing this guy teach, and now the the temple officials are seeking him out to arrest him. I, I mean, this is a feast of the Jews in Jerusalem, being run, as it were, by the Jewish authorities, and now there are temple court officials sent to arrest Jesus. What's going to stop them, right? I mean, Jesus is going to be arrested. This will be another, you know, strange rabbi or teacher, maybe like it had happened in the previous years or in their culture, uh, that some guy would teach and there'd be some other sect or some other cult, and then it'd be shut down. Uh, and so I guess they think, well, okay, this is it. This will be easy. Catch Jesus, catch this weird, weird teacher, and, and shut it down, Right? Uh, but Jesus isn't just a weird teacher, right? He's not just a rabbi like we talked about last week. This is the, uh, the son of the living God. This is God himself incarnate in the flesh. Nothing can stop Jesus. And yet, Jesus in verse 33 says something very shocking. He says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. I'm not going to go to your jail. I'm not going to go with, with those being arrested to me, but I am going to leave you and I'm going back to the one who sent me. Verse 34, you will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Similar to last week, again, we're going to see the crowd respond with confusion to what Jesus is declaring here. And thankfully, we are living thousands of years after this crowd. Thankfully, even John's audience knew a lot more about Jesus than this crowd did here in this moment. So I think there's a lot of truths that we can unpack in verses 33 and 34 together. But I want to just move beyond it real quick. Let's look at how the people respond. Let's let's dig into their confusions and dig into their responses, because I think we'll learn a little bit more about our own own flesh, honestly, our own sort of instinctive reactions to the declarations of God. So let's look at verses 35 and 36 together. How How do they respond? Well, the Jews said to one another, first, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him. I, I love that. They're, I mean, they're just incredulous that Jesus can get away. I, I mean, 
Jesus, you've been teaching with such authority. The crowds have been astonished and marveled. Uh, remember, this is late in Jesus' ministry, even though we'll, you know, finishing the chapter today, we'll be through just a third of John. But John speaks so much more about the last week of Jesus' life and the teachings that he gives the disciples in the upper room, those kind of things. And so we're, we're very far along in the ministry of Jesus. These crowds have heard stuff about Jesus. Uh, think back to when we were in John chapter 6. You remember when Jesus fed the 5,000, and even when he went away to go pray, even when he literally walked across the Sea of Galilee, they still found a way to get to him, right? So they're thinking, where is this man going to (laughs) go that we can't find him, that these temple officials won't be able to arrest him? That's, That's silly. But secondly, beyond that, they then start to speculate, right? So if, if he's claiming he's going to get away and he's going to go to the one who sent him or whatever, well, where even is that, right? Look at what they say at the end of verse 35. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Does he intend to go to the, the Jews that are away from Judea, away from Jerusalem, away from this part of the world that are in the, the, the Greco-Roman world in different cities like we see talked about in the book of Acts? Uh, in Antioch and Ephesus and Philippi and the, you know, all the places that Paul writes to and plants churches in, uh, is he going to go and, and teach them? Uh, it's interesting here, over the history of the Jews that we see in Scripture and even in historical records, the Jews, uh, God's people, faced many times of being dispersed or scattered, right? Uh, think back to the Old Testament when Israel had been saved and brought into the promised land, and yet after many, many years, many, many generations of God showing his abundant patience towards them, he eventually sent them into exile. And the prophets clearly announced this was going to happen because of sin, because of their rebellion against the God who had saved them. They would be dispersed. And even after exile, they were brought back as God promised would happen. And we see that in, in a lot of the books like Ezra and Nehemiah, those things happening where, where the, the, the people of God come back to the, the place of God in Jerusalem. They rebuild the city, they rebuild the temple, all those things. Uh, but in between the Old Testament and the New, there's other uh, moments in Israel's history that they're not recorded for us in Scripture, but we can read in history of times when the Jews have been dispersed uh, and, and even those who were dispersed in exile, as we learned about in John 4, groups like the Samaritans and others, uh, they remained far away from Jerusalem. And it's very, very interesting that these Jews are questioning among themselves, saying to one another, does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? This isn't just like a wondering aloud question. I don't want you to miss, there's a, there, this, this question is, is just dripping with irony in our text, uh, because the Jews, as we've seen in, in passages, I mentioned the Samaritans, right? Like in John 4, the disciples were surprised when Jesus was talking with a Samaritan woman. They were, how, Jesus, why would you associate with this person, right? I mean, even more than, than the Samaritans, the, the Jews saw themselves as the people of God, ethnically separate from the rest of the world, called to be God's people. And they have a, a great, uh, what we would you know, call in this day and age, like a xenophobia, a, a hatred even, of other people groups that often comes up even in derogatory questions like this. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and even teach the Greeks? That's kind of the tone that we're getting here in this question. Why in the world would Jesus do that? It's a good reminder for us that God has always had on his heart the blessing of the nations 
through even his chosen people. It's why he called Abraham. He said, I want to make you a blessing to the nations. Isaiah 56 verses 6 through 8 shows us God's heart. He writes, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. Verse 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, the dispersion, the diaspora, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Yet others. That's the heart of God. That's why we pray for the nations, right? Because God loves the nations. God so loved the world, all ethnicities, all people groups, all languages. His gospel is not just for one in particular. It's always been sent out that it might be a light to the nations. We see that so clearly in the ministry and the work of Jesus, even here in this moment. And the irony is, I love this, they ask, does he intend to go teach the Greeks? Well, actually, yeah. I mean, (laughs) he actually does. It's just not in the way you think. You're going to have to stick with the story a little bit longer because Jesus is going to die on a cross for the sins of all those who would believe in him. He's going to defeat death three days later, raise from the dead. He's going to ascend to his Father in heaven, and he's going to send his Holy Spirit into the hearts and lives of his followers, his apostles, his disciples. And guess where they're going to go? To teach among the dispersion, and to teach the Greeks of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's incredible that what the enemies of God, what those who oppose Christ will laugh at him so often God turns around in his redemption and makes for his glory. That's a good truth for us to remember, church. Jesus is indeed going to be preached among the Greeks, but sadly, this crowd just doesn't get it. They're, they're not willing to believe in Jesus at this moment. The only thing crazier than God sending their Messiah out of Nazareth is them sending, him sending that Messiah then to the rest of the world. They have no concept for this happening. And Jesus doesn't answer their questions here, at least that's not what's recorded for us, right? So what are we meant to understand by what Jesus said in verses 33 and 34? If that's the wrong response, what is the right response? What is Jesus telling us? Well, thanks be to God, as I said earlier, John wrote this gospel account to an audience who knew so much of the life of Jesus. This is a a late gospel account in history. Uh, And so there's so much that they're aware of what is going to happen to Jesus. Throughout John's gospel, there's many mentions of Jesus going back to the Father. He's going to be glorified. He's, He's going to go away. All of these are talking about the return of Jesus to God by way of the cross, that Jesus will actually die. Even though the officers sent to arrest him, they won't succeed in this story, but there will be a time when Jesus goes and he is willingly going to walk to the cross and die. And he really will have his dead body buried in a tomb. And thanks be to God, he really will defeat death. He will raise and return to life through the resurrection, but he's going to appear several times to his his, uh, disciples and then he's going to ascend back to heaven. That's what we see in Acts chapter uh, 1 and 2, right? In the ascension of Jesus, we see him uh, appear to the disciples, teach them, tell them, commission them that you're going to be my witnesses in this world, and then go back to the Father. 
where he is right now, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. So it is true when Jesus says in verse 33, I will be with you a little longer, just a little longer. In some sense, it's just six months longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. But I think verse 34 is really important for us to, to consider for a moment this morning. Because uh, he says something very strong here. You will seek me and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. This is a difficult teaching. Where I am you cannot come. I think even in the phrasing of the way Jesus says it, where I am, you cannot come, is an interesting turn of phrase, right? Uh, We're meant to be reminded here that access to God is not something that man can accomplish on his own, right? Um, We are finite. We are men and women who have been born into sin and have ourselves sinned against our own creator. Uh, it is true what God tells Moses in Exodus thirty-three twenty. even the mediator of God who does make access to God through faith in the, the old covenant, he tells in Exodus 33, verse 20, you can't even see my face for man shall not see me and live. But when we put our faith in Jesus, when we believe in Jesus, as we'll see unfold in the passage more and more this, this morning, we do have access to the Father. We do have access to God. We do have an abundant provision even in the presence of God with us. And that's what Jesus will go on to teach. What's interesting is that verse 34, he'll reference again later on when he's talking to the disciples. In John 13, 33, he'll tell them, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And they get concerned about this. I mean, you would be too, right? You've been following this guy who you believe to be the Son of God, the Messiah, and all these things, and now you're beginning to understand him saying, wait, he's really going to leave? Hold up, what's going on here? He's really going to die? That's, that's what Jesus is, has been teaching all along, but in John 13 and, and the following chapters, they really start to understand what's going to happen. They get concerned. That's why at the end of that section, the beginning of John 14, Jesus gives this amazing declaration of hope to those who follow him. In John 14, starting at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? What does Jesus say to them in response? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's an amazing promise. When we think about the certain destination of Jesus that he's telling the Jews here in this moment in John 7, he's going to be with them a little while uh, longer, and he's going to go away to where they can't come. Chapters later, he's going to tell those who follow him, yes, I'm going to go, go away to a place you can't come, but I will come again and take you to be with me. Christian, I think in our understanding of this text, when we apply it rightly and write theology to ourselves, we can understand there's a yet to that you cannot come phrase. 
because we, through faith in Christ, have access to a loving God and Father who will send His Son one day on a certain day to bring us to a certain destination to be with Him. That's an amazing hope. Not only that, but that certain destination is the promise of God throughout all of the Scriptures to make a new heavens and a new earth where God will be perfectly and eternally worshipped and enjoy fellowship and communion with His people forever. Listen to the promise of that from Revelation 21, verses 5 through 8, a well-known passage. Revelation 21, 5 through 8, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. Christian, be encouraged. Through faith in Jesus, you have a certain destination that is being prepared for you even now. And the Bible says that Jesus is interceding for you even now so that you would be kept and sealed and protected and persevere in him until that day. Your destination is set, and there is no place on this earth that can compare to it. It is a place that the, the Bible goes on at the end of Scripture to talk about where there's no tears or pain or death or mourning or sadness, but God himself is the temple, is the place of God and the place of worship, and they have no need for a lamp or a sun or any other source of light because God himself is a source of light. Christian, your destination is God himself eternal life with him forever. When you believe in Jesus, that should be the operating hope in our own hearts and minds when we wrestle with where we feel like we're stuck right now. Where you're at right now is not always where you're going to be. Be encouraged, Christian. There is a certain destination kept being prepared even for you. But if you don't believe in Jesus, I don't, I don't believe. Scripture gives us the license to add a yet there is a place that you cannot come. Jesus is so sure of this that when he repeats himself in chapter 8, verse 12, he'll add, and you will die in your sins. What does he mean? What is he talking about? Well, I think even if we just stick with that same passage in Revelation 21 that I just read, verse 8 that comes right after that, it, described, it just described this, this beautiful city. Well, what about outside of that? Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The last verse of that chapter says, nothing unclean will ever enter this city that God is making for his people, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Friend, th this is a deeply serious and tragic truth to what Jesus is proclaiming here, that where I am going, you cannot come. We have not been made at random. We, we were made with the purpose of glorifying the God who made us and sharing in His perfect love forever. Our sinful rebellion against Him is not just some frivolous sort of footnote in a particular moment in history. It goes against the fabric of why the universe was made. 
And that's why Jesus speaks not only of a certain destination of those who believe in him, but also a certain destination of those to whom he says, you cannot come. And, And the threshold for that, that we'll see unpacked for us in the last day of the feast is not some set of rules. It's not some set of things that you've got to make sure and accomplish in your life. It's not a particular ethnicity or language group or people group or community that you have to make yourself a part of. It is faith in Jesus who came to save, who cries in verse 38, whoever believes in me, who cries out in verse 37, if anyone thirsts, Friend, if you don't know God, believe in Jesus. Faith is all it takes to change those two destinations that Jesus is hinting at and speaking to in that first section. Yes, there is a real place where you can try to seek, but you will not be able to find God. Not because God's not everywhere. That's who God is. But because his presence there is not one of loving fellowship, but of righteous judgment. Friend, believe in Jesus today. I urge you. Jesus spent these days at this feast teaching about himself so that the people might believe. Let me at least spend the few minutes I've got this morning to do the same. Believe in Jesus. He loves you. He will be arrested and will die so that you might come to him through faith. I urge you to believe in him even today. Joel 2, 12 I love this, talking about the the day of the Lord. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. In verse 13, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. That's the character of our God. And while you have the opportunity a little while longer, believe in him today. It's interesting thinking about the day of the Lord, the the judgment connection that Jesus hints at when he talks about where he's going. Uh, The day of the Lord, judgment day, is talked about a lot, not just in books like Revelation, but even in the Old Testament. Uh, What's interesting, in in Zechariah chapter 14, uh, it's a difficult chapter of Scripture. I encourage you to go read it and look into it later. Uh, But in verse 8, it talks about that there's going to be in, in the midst of this day of the Lord, there's going to be a feast of booths, of tabernacles, where something's going to happen. Zechariah 14, verse 8 says, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. In the midst of promising judgment, God promises new life. He, he makes water to spring out from a place that it might provide access to the whole earth, as what's hinted in, in the, the, the metaphorical imagery that we're seeing in verse 8 there. So as we transition to this next section, we, we see that faith in Christ doesn't just provide us a certain destination one day, but if you're taking notes this morning, it provides an abundant provision even right now. That, that's what Jesus declares to the people. Look at, look at it with me in verse 37. It says, On the last day of the feast... The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And I love John because he knows 
I, I'm uh, you know, full-time this summer, but this would have been a great text to preach part-time because he's already given me the hints in it. Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit. Oh, thank you, John. Whom those who believed in him were yet to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus is clearly teaching here about the provision of the Spirit for those who believe in him. So we want to dig in close. We want to figure out, okay, what? What's going on here? What does Jesus want us to understand about this provision that God has given in his spirit? One thing we might want to look at first is why would Jesus say this on the last day of the feast, what John calls the great day? It's a good good little note um, for us that I, I think if we just, you know, Scripture is sufficient, friend. We we read this. It says, okay, on the last day, the great day, okay, it's an important day. Jesus stands up. I bet he's going to say something important, and he does. I think the whole, the whole chapter hinges on this. If that's all we know, we're good to go. Let me encourage you. We don't have to dig into every Wikipedia page and, and chase down every historical record. Uh, God has given us in his word sufficient truth. Uh, I'm so thankful for that. Uh, but just to even add a, a helpful apologetic, a helpful context for us, it is so clear in uh, lots of historical records that the Jews at this time and even many, many years beforehand would celebrate the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, each day of that week with this water-pouring ceremony. The high priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam. Uh, he would fill up a golden vessel, and he would make a, a big procession up to the temple. Uh, on the way, he'd pass through uh, the, water gra- the water gate, and the people would recite an interesting verse. Isaiah 12, verse 3. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. I think that's intentional. And they'd get up to the temple, and he would pour out the water as a sacrifice to the Lord. And on the great day, they did the same thing in a great way. Suffice to say, they they would take the same journey, but they'd walk around it seven times and pour it out. And it'd be this great uh, beginning to the last day of the feast to remember God's provision as he gave abundantly to the Israelites, even when they were in the wilderness. But it also, even as they say from Isaiah 12, 3 and other passages that were brought to mind during that ceremony, they're talking about this messianic age where God is going to pour out his spirit on the peoples. They're, they're longing for this. So they're seeing this happen. They just made the long journey, the long trek up to the Temple Mount. They, the, the priest has poured out the water and Jesus stands up. This guy who, I guess, the last couple days or 24 hours or however long, the officers have still not arrested him somehow. And he stands up and proclaims, whoever believes in me, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Stop, stop waiting for something that's going to be poured out one day. I'm right here. Come to me now. That's what Jesus is offering to the people. And so, I, oh my goodness, there's so much that we can unpack. I, I think that really the, the whole passage and chapter leans on these three verses Uh, but time does not suffice to be able to walk through the whole counsel of God on the the, the living water uh, and and the Spirit and all the theological things we could dive into. I just want to look at a few short things here, because Jesus is using a particular metaphor for a particular reason. He's talking about living water, right? He's talking about this water that's being poured out. And so I want us to just stop for a minute and consider how is the Spirit of God, how is this abundant provision that's offered through faith in Jesus like living water for the people of God? What can we learn from this this morning, Christian? How, how can we be encouraged or challenged or grow in our understanding of God's Spirit? Well, first, I think 
we see that like living water, the Spirit is life-giving. It's life-giving. It actually provides life to those who have it. The people in the ancient world probably know this better than we do now. Speaking of taking things for granted, things that we have access to, right? The, the Spirit of God is not like a faucet you turn on and off. It's not just something that you sort of forget about and it's just over there and you've got like, oh, I've got this pipe for the Holy Spirit and I've got this one for some other inspiration or whatever that is. And it's not like there's some sort of special action or routine or experience or place where we're going to activate it or turn it off or that kind of thing. That, that's, that's not the concept here, right? No, the Spirit of God is like, it's like the Colorado River, like blasting through the Southwest and over years and years and years and years carving out a canyon and providing a place for life to exist. That is way better for the idea of, again, living water. You remember when we were in John 4? I'm referencing that a lot. Go look at John 4 later. A lot about living water in that, in that chapter. Remember when the woman at the well asks, what do you mean living water? You have access to that. Well, she was confused because that phrase is talking about just running water, fresh water. Friend, the, the Spirit is life-giving because it is a certain place where you can find consistent life. The Spirit gives us life. I, I love this from, from Job 38, when God is talking to Job at the very end of the book, declaring who he is. Job 38, verse 25, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and away for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass. Only God can do that. Only God can make this world and, and create water in such a way and create life in such a way that it's dependent on that water. If that's true physically, you better believe it's true spiritually. We depend on God Himself, His very Spirit, His presence for life. What does that mean for us who have faith in Christ? Look to Romans 8. Again, another chapter. I'm going to say this a couple more times. There's just so many scriptures that we can dive into. Check out Romans 8 this, this week in full. But uh, for now, just verse 10 of Romans 8, it says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is what? life because of righteousness. Verse 11 goes on to describe if the Spirit of God is the same Spirit that was in Jesus that brought Him back to life, how much more is that Spirit that is now in you through faith going to give you certain eternal and true life? The, the Spirit is life-giving. So, what does that mean for us? It means that we have not just access to some sort of temporary security, some, some sort of simple comfort or hope, we have access to the presence of the living God. If anyone thirsts, let him come to Jesus and drink, and not just find a brief encouragement, but life with God forever. The Spirit is life-giving. Hebrews 10, 22, so let us draw near with a true heart Let's approach the throne boldly, Christian, not because of our own merits or works, but because of what Jesus has done. His arms have widely welcomed us into the comfort and the presence of the living God. Let us not turn away from that.
Let's approach him. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. The rest of that verse says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That gives us a second truth, I think. It's life-giving, but it's also sin-cleansing. Water has a cleansing uh, quality to it, right? We use it to wash our hands. We use it to wash our dishes. We use it to wash anything, right? Water cleans. In a spiritual sense, we have been made clean before a holy and righteous God because he has washed us. Listen, I love the way Titus 3 describes this. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, it says this, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of our God and our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When I say that the Spirit is sin cleansing, I know we want to jump to the sanctifying work of that, and we will in just a moment, but I just want you to stop and consider, when I say sin cleansing, I mean that in Christ, what we just sang is true, that the blood of Jesus has washed us white as snow, that we are 100% clean before a righteous God, not because of our own works, but because of the work of the Spirit in our lives through faith in Christ. That's good news, Christian. When you feel the despair and the shame of your own actions and living in a sinful, fallen, and broken world, don't turn to your own hope for a strategy or something like that to get better. Remember the gospel again. Remember what Jesus has done to purchase your salvation. Look to Him and find hope and comfort that He washes you, cleanses you from sin, absolutely and purely. And on that great judgment day, we won't uh, praise God uh, foremostly for all of our strategies or all this stuff that we did or anything like that. We will simply say, it is because of Jesus who invited me to come and drink. That is why I have life. That is why I am clean. It's life-giving, sin-cleansing. It's also fruit-producing. It is a sanctifying work that the Spirit does in our lives. Water leads to growth, right? I, I love getting to talk about this in this, uh, this time of year because, you know, we're heading into summer, and I don't love summer. It gets so hot and so frustrating, but I, I, you know, whenever it's slightly cool, or at least I can stand in the shade for four minutes, I can at least enjoy all the beautiful things that are growing because the weather is warm, because we're getting some rain, and because life has come back, right? You see the flowers, you see plants, Uh, You see so many wonderful things. If you get a chance to go on vacation and visit a beautiful place, look for sources of water and see what's happening in that place, whether it's a canyon or a lake or river or something like that. There are amazing things that happen because of the source of water. Christian, that should be true of us as well. We have access to the presence of the living God, and He's not just some static, stand-apart sort of God. He's a God that is active in the work of creation in glorifying Himself. He's active in you to produce good fruit. Think about Colossians 5, when Paul says in verse 16, he, he's saying to the church in, uh, to the church, to the Colossians, in Colossus, Colossi. Colton, help me out. Col- Colossus. Yeah, okay, great. Sorry, I just had this moment. My brain entirely left me, and I was like, I don't know, what is the name of this place? The Colossians. In, in chapter 5, verse 16, what does he tell them to do? Walk by the Spirit, right? Why? Not just because it's a fun place to walk or where you're supposed to go, but it produces good fruit. What does that look like? 
Well, he describes it in, in, in uh, terms of God's own character, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are evidences of the Holy Spirit at work within you, producing fruit. Let's consider that. If we have been given life through Christ, if we've been truly cleansed from sin, what is the evidence in our life that that's happened? The Spirit in us is fruit-producing. Uh, but lastly in this section, it's soul-satisfying. Soul-satisfying. I, I love getting to just stop for a moment in this text and to think about the posture of Jesus towards these crowds that have opposed him, been against him, questioned him, misunderstood him over these last several, several days at the feast. What kind of God and Savior, after days of being at a feast and being rejected, would at the end of it stand up in front of everybody and says, if anyone comes, if whoever believes, you'll find this life. You'll be cleansed from your sins. Not only that, but God will use you for good fruit-producing results That's the kind of God we have. And if that's true, friend, I I can think of no other soul-satisfying comfort, no other great encouragement for us when we live in a world that is filled with so many shallow, quick little things that make us feel happy for a moment, so many things that we chase down in our own efforts to feel satisfied when Jesus just says, come. Jesus Himself is the one who satisfies. God is our source of satisfaction, even to the depths of our soul. Jeremiah 33, verse 25, in this chapter when God's talking about the new covenant, He says, for I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. How is He going to do that? Well, verse 33 of Jeremiah 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you don't just get access to the stuff in a cool house or a fancy mansion. You get to become a part of God's own family living in that place. That place of spiritual benefit, that place of spiritual comfort and hope, Fields member, I hope you've experienced even just a glimpse of that by practicing the faith together, by being members of one another here at the Fields Church. That we find, as we are reminded so often of the gospel speaking into one another's lives, that God alone satisfies. And how sweet is that to hear that from the lips of a brother or sister in the faith when you feel discouraged, when you're feeling weak. How good is that for you to speak that, to say there's nothing else that can satisfy except Jesus. And to be able to walk with that hurting sister, hurting brother. That's the hope that we have and that the Spirit gives us is that in this new covenant, the, what's so soul satisfying about it is that we are gods. Isn't that incredible? Access to the Father, it all connects there. That the access that we have gives us all these wonderful things. That's why Paul can say in Romans 15, verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. 
And they have all kinds of approaches and understandings of things on spiritual gifts and things like that. Let me just say that what we do know is the power of the Spirit brings true satisfaction to the hungry soul. And we can see and experience the work of God in the lives of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's so good, Christian. Let us be thankful. Let us walk by the Spirit. But at the same time, in closing this morning, let's remember that even with having this abundant provision, we live in a world that's full of divided responses. That's the third thing we see. Verses 40 through 52 is a divided response. It's the longest section of our text, but I'll spend the shortest time in it so that we'll just see all the different ways that sadly the crowds and especially the Pharisees continue to reject what Jesus has offered. Walk through it with me. Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Friend, don't be like those who just say, this really is the prophet. That's good. We saw that already declared in previous chapters. Jesus Christ is the prophet of promise from the Old Testament, but he is so much more than that. He's not just a temporary prophet. He is Christ the King. He is the true king from David's line that came to offer true spiritual life through faith in him. Verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. That's good. Be like those who say, this is the Christ. But don't be like them in the coming chapters when they'll say, this is the Christ, with their lips, but their hearts will turn away from him when Jesus continues to teach about himself. Do not just give lip service to Jesus. Come to him. Go to him. He is, has come to us. I mean, we should remember in, in, when we're walking through a gospel, we should always be in amazement of how God has brought himself to this earth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Don't just declare this is the Christ. Go to him. Verse 41, still, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David, from Bethlehem, the village where David was. Don't be like those who ask again what we talked about last week, about his birthplace, about getting caught up on the facts and figures of it. If you were to search the Scriptures, you would find, yes, Luke 1 and 2, as we sing about every year, that Jesus really was born in Bethlehem. And yes, as we see in the other Gospels, he uh, is, is truly from Nazareth at the same time living there, and he does ministry in Galilee. But here's the reality. He's from God. Believe in the one who's been sent from God. Jesus has already explained this. He's been teaching in Jerusalem that he is from God, and that's enough. Don't be like these that continue to question. Come to him by faith first, and then receive his Spirit, through whom you will, as we'll learn later on in John chapter 14 through 16, as Jesus talks about the helper that's going to come. He will teach you all things through his word. That is a wonderful truth. But come to him in faith today. Don't refuse to be a subject until you and your standards of what a right king should be are met. Come to Jesus who has died for you. Uh, Verse 43 says, so there was a division among the people over him. Let's not be divided. Let's not be divided. Let us come to Jesus. Verse 44, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. I think this is an amazing just glimpse into not only the authority, again, with which Jesus teaches and speaks, but also the sovereignty of God to protect his Messiah until the day of his death. No one laid hands on him. And we see how that shakes out in the rest of 
this chapter, the, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees. The Pharisees said to them, why did you not bring him? Why did they not arrest him? What was the reason? Verse 46, no one ever spoke like this man. They're still astonished. They're still amazed by what he's teaching. The Pharisees, it's so tragic to see they continue to deny and reject Jesus as the Christ, and they do it through ridicule. He answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? In other words, we're the guys who understand religion. We're the guys who understand God. We don't believe in him. What makes you think you understand what's right? Friend, remember, Jesus did not, does not say, if the smartest person come to me or if the person with the most power will come to me. He says, if anyone, anyone. We have such an abundant access to Christ through this wide welcome. And it's an amazing thing to remember that we should be reflecting this to the world, not looking down on those around us, but lifting them up so that they'll see Jesus. But that's not what these Pharisees are doing. Even in verse 49, after they spent the week worshiping with them, they then say, this crowd does not know, uh, that does not know the law is accursed. Verse 50, we get a little glimpse of hope here. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing, learning what he does? You can see Nicodemus' hearts being worked on here. When you think back to chapter 3 when he was talking with Jesus, there's so much growth that's happening here. That's an amazing thing. And we'll see that continue on even later in John. But ultimately, at the end of the chapter, verse 52, they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Christian, all these responses, let's remember that even when Jesus himself stands up in front of this amazing picture of what God is promising and says, I am the fulfillment of this promise and I offer it to you, that doesn't mean that suddenly the whole crowds get saved and everything's happy and life is easy. There's a divided response because we still live in a sinful and broken world. So Christian, don't be discouraged when you face the same, when you declare the truth of Jesus we will also receive a divided response like Jesus did. But Jesus, who promises to take us to be with him one day, is also through his Spirit with us right now. And he certainly suffered these kind of responses. Even more than that, he suffered death on the cross for you, to save you, to show his great love for you. So let's persevere together, even when we feel like we live in such a divisive time. Even more than that, when we think about those that we're trying to share the gospel with, those that we've been pleading with the Lord, that we've been trying to, to invite over for dinner or have a co gospel conversation with, or those in our family that we've been trying to get to come visit our church on a Sunday morning or, or just even have a short conversation about Jesus, um, let's turn back to God himself. Let's ask for the Holy Spirit to move and to do what we cannot. The Spirit gives life, so let's ask him to do it. Let's depend on him totally. But I'll close with this, just saying, look, if you're here this morning and you haven't come to Jesus and believed in him, as long as you have life in your lungs, you have a little while longer. Put your faith in Jesus. His arms are wide open, saying if anyone comes, he will have this abundant provision of living water, 
in him, out of his heart will flow that abundant provision. Come to him today. It's not just the theme of this text. I I think we see that carried out throughout Scripture because the, the Bible even ends with it. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price to you. Believe in Jesus and take the water of life that has been made available through faith in him. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for the reminder in your word this morning that you are just, that you do not see the sinful choices of mankind, the sinful and broken systems in our world, and the injustices. You, you don't turn a blind eye to those things, but there is a judgment day coming where you will make all things new. But God, I'm so thankful that those of us, all of us who have taken part in these things, whether small or great, you have sent your son so that we might have life and have it abundantly in his name. I thank you that you've given that to me and even the encouragement this week of the many ways that you've given access to amazing things through the gift of your Holy Spirit. I pray that we as a church would take advantage of the life that you've given, that we would produce in us good fruit through walking by your Spirit, not resisting the work of the Spirit in our lives, but putting on the whole armor of God and standing firm in the midst of a divided world and holding fast to Jesus. Help us to do that, Father. But I pray this morning, if there's a heart in this room that has thought that they could just turn on eternal life from a faucet by their own works, God, would you break through their hearts? Would you pour out living water in in the work of your spirit of regeneration and renewal, cleansing them of their sins? Would you draw them to faith and repentance? Help them to see the, the wide arms of Jesus and help them to know the presence of your Holy Spirit, even this morning, that they might have a certain destination with you one day in heaven. We thank you for these reminders. We ask for your help. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.